The Sex Ed with Tim podcast is recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. We acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Williams Treaty, signed with multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. You're listening to Sex Ed with Tim. <laughs> And welcome to the Sex Ed with Tim podcast. I am your host, Tim. I am a sex educator. I identify as chaotically gay. And my favorite sexual position is lying down, holding hands, embracing each other, staring into each other's eyes, and talking about why our childhood trauma has stunted us as adults. Yay! <laughs> my guest today is... So adorable, so smart. He is, oh my God, a Vanier scholar. Hello. <laughs> he is my <laughs> he is my favorite twink that could be on Sean Cody. <laughs> oh my god, I've never thought of myself that way. <laughs> and He's just amazing. I love that he's on the show. Please welcome David Collect. Hi, David. Hey, Tim. How's it going? <laughs> Hi, David. <laughs> Hello. Help. You know, it's funny. Ever since like Shit's Creek aired, like everyone says that to me now, like mm-hmm. in Alexis Rose's voice. <laughs> yeah, David. David. And yes, then with the, exactly. with the little Tyrannosaurus Rex hands. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She got her little hands. <laughs> So, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. I love that you're here. Uh, For the listeners who don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Sure. So, yeah, my name is David. I... um... I don't know what to say about myself. Uh, I right now I am a student. I'm working on my PhD um, in clinical psychology. So I am a training, I guess, psychologist in training right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I do research work with like queer communities and like queer guys um, in particular. Um, and yeah, I guess those are kind of my interests. Do I need to say my sexual position as well? Because you did that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you want, totally. <laughs> yeah, no, it's okay. I don't know how to answer that question. I'm not sure. What are you, like on the floor, or the ceiling, on a merry-go-round? Like, what do you prefer? <laughs> on no. the ceiling sounds kind of exciting. Oh, yeah. Just like that scene in Scary Movie where they, like, hump each other all the way up to the room. You yes. don't know that one? Yeah, you do remember? Yes, Oh, yes. my God. So, like... It's so cool. Like you work in mental health and I love that. Like, what are you doing right now within uh, like the context of the pandemic? It must be so like pressing to to like the need for mental health services must be so pressing right now. So what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, I think 
you know, it's it's kind of wild how like COVID has really shifted. I think the way that like mental health services are offered. Um, I mean, I will say for myself, like you know, being in Ontario, like with the lockdown right now, um, everything has shifted online. So I'm doing all my therapy work um, via like Zoom and like other digital video platforms. Um, it's been okay. I mean, I, I feel lucky to be able to like sort of shift all my work online. But I mean. You know, I think I think the COVID that COVID and like the pandemic in general, it's just kind of taking a toll on everyone. Like it comes mm-hmm. up in almost all of my sessions with clients, or at least some point in our work. You know, it sort of comes up as a as a topic and something that's difficult for people to handle. So, um, what's the yeah. most common thing that's coming up for your clients? I think just the sense of being isolated, you know, like just that sort of like, particularly people living alone or you know living with only a few people. And just that sense of like not being able to connect and really, you know, you have a government and, a, you know, really just pe- like others really discouraging you from connecting outside of your home. So, um, yeah, I think it's just that. What are like those really bad negative effects of isolation? Because like for me, I love being alone. Like pre-pandemic, I would just be like, no, stay away from me. Please don't ever touch me. That is like my favorite (laughs) amount of space, just arm's length. And now it's like now everyone's isolated. And it's like now I can't socially isolate from people because it's my choice. It's because I'm forced to. Ugh. Gross. Yes, <laughs> so exactly. Yeah, are, I like, feel like I am kind of the same. Like by by nature, I'm totally more introverted. So it's yeah. like it's actually been sort of okay. But for me, it's it's the fact that you don't even have the option. You know, like I don't have yes. the option to like go out like to a bar with friends or like I don't know, go to the beach or whatever. Like that's the problem for me. I don't. I don't have, don't the, have the option to <laughs> deny you my body. <laughs> Uh, yes. It's really hard. Uh, so I wanted to bring you on because in 2020, you released this thesis. It was so amazing. I haven't fully read it because it's like 100 pages and like I'm struggling to get through my own readings right now. But tell the listeners the title and give us like the elevator pitch of it. Yeah, I appreciate that. My... um. Yeah, so as part of my master's this year, I released or I, I finished writing up my um, my master's thesis. So the title is long. Um, it's we minority time, stress. Baby. I know it's minority stress, <laughs> positive sexual minority identity, and eudaimonic well-being experiences among sexual and gender diverse communities. So it's very long and um, obnoxiously academic. <laughs> <laughs> so um, for those of us not in academia, what does that mean? Um, yeah, I think, you know, so like essentially, you know, a lot of the work that's done around like queer mental health and particularly with queer guys, um, really kind of has like a negative spin to it. So, you know, often the research is focused on, you know, sort of these statistics that show that, you know, gay and bisexual men, for example, have like higher rates of depression and anxiety and, you know, suicidal ideation compared to like heterosexual men um or like eating disorders or substance use issues like this kind of stuff um which i think is really valuable research and really important but i'm also kind of interested in this piece where it's sort of like despite the fact that that's true like not all queer people have negative mental health experiences or they don't all have it or we don't all have it like across 
you know, the course of our entire lifetimes. So I'm kind of interested in figuring out like, how do you sort of create like positive experiences, right? Like how do you sort of as a queer person develop like a sense of purpose in life or direction or live a life that feels really meaningful. Um, so that's kind of what the research is focused on. Um, and I think what it kind of brings to the field. That's so awesome because like, well, first of all, I've never heard of a gay guy with out mental health issues that's unheard of <laughs> wow yeah, no, um, for sure there, you mentioned in your title there's like a really big like buzzword in there uh, eudaimonic what does that mean a eudaimonic well-being yeah it's a good question so eudaimonia or like a eudaimonic well-being i mean it's really it's actually quite an old term like it really goes back to like the philosophers like you know sort of like plato and um aristotle, aristotle and these kinds of yeah. people yes yes these she's, original she's well read she's well read yes the ogs um <laughs> and you know they were really trying to answer the question like you know what is the meaning of life like they were sort of thinking about these kinds of things and so really it's another way of thinking about happiness right like often we sort of think of happiness in in what's called like a hedonic way of thinking like really that you know being happy is associated with pleasure right and and not just like you know pleasure from something like sex or like good food or whatever but really like in general like anything that makes you feel like good you know positive like you're having a pleasurable experience eudaimonia is sort of thinks about it from more of like a values or like meaning perspective. So thinking about like, is living a good life or a life that feels happy, you know, it's sort of more focused on like meaning in a way, like, do I feel like my life is, is with meaning or with direction or with purpose, like that kind of stuff. Um, so it's really just a different way of thinking about like happiness, I guess. I mean, it sounds almost like eudaimonia and hedonism kind of go hand in hand. What's like, uh, what would you say is like the core difference between those two? Because they both sound like pleasurable experiences, but from like a different approach. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. It's like, I almost feel like in a way it sort of feels hard to put into words actually. Like for me, it's just sort of this felt sense. Like, I mean, for myself, like I know what it feels like to think about something that's like more pleasure based or something that's more based around, you know, happiness as pleasure. But I also sort of feel like I know what it's like to just feel like your life has a sense of direction, like sort of that you're, you know, you live your life consistent with certain values or um, there are things that you want to contribute to the world or whatever, um, maybe through like activism or through things like just having like positive relationships with people around you um, as an example. Like really, I guess it's the, yeah, it's sort of more the driver. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of how I think, I think about it. I think I get where you are. It's kind of like if I'm in bed and there's like a huge fist in my ass and then in my head I'm thinking, why is there a fist in my ass? Why is there a fist? Why is there a body? Where am I going? What do I have to give back to the world? That's exactly what I'm thinking. That's perfect. Yeah. I got it. I got it. I'm an academic. It's a really good analogy. Yeah. She's an academic. <laughs> Yeah, um, specifically fisting. <laughs> exactly. Um, I want to ask also, like, are there specific things that characterize eudaimonia? 
Yeah, I mean, great question. I mean, in my research, like I, um, there are things that I kind of use to think about like what eudaimonia actually is. Um, and really it comes from um, research from this, uh, this woman, her last name is Rife. I can't remember her first name off the top of my head, but um, yeah, back in the eighties, like she really tried to, you know, sort of figure out, well, like, what is it that is eudaimonic? Like, what are the things that really make people feel like they're living a life that's meaningful and like has direction. And so she really broke it down into six, six different things. And that's kind of what is included in, in my, in my paper. And so those include, um, like having a sense of autonomy. So like sort of being an individual person, um, environmental mastery, which really is kind of this sense of having control over your environment, like sort of the things happening around you, like having some sense of being in control of that, at least at, certain times, um, personal growth. So feeling like you kind of grow as an individual over time, um, positive relationships with others. So really feeling like you have meaningful and, you know, positive and rewarding relationships with the people in your life. Um, having like a purpose in life. So quite literally feeling like you have a direction and there's something that, you know, keeps you going, um, and self-acceptance, like kind of this, you know, sense of obviously like, you know, liking yourself or loving yourself or feeling acceptance towards yourself. Um, Ooh, yeah. And that's something that I know a lot of gays face, huh? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. It oh, like no. totally comes up. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's tough to like create that sense of self-acceptance for sure. So statistically gay, bisexual and men who have sex with men or just queer men, mm -hmm. um, they are statistically known to have less of these eudaimonic well-being experiences right am i is that right in, am i right in saying that yeah yeah it is so. yeah kind of so like that's i mean that's that's sort of like what pushed me to do this research because we don't like know you know, like we don't necessarily know whether that's the case. Um, I mean, there hasn't been a ton of research specifically on like eudaimonia and like these kinds of like, you know, positive well-being outcomes. I mean, we know that, you know, gay and bisexual men or queer men in general, like um, have a higher incidence or, you know, more frequently experienced negative mental health outcomes. So you would assume like logically, yeah, it makes sense that it's probably harder for them to also experience or for us, I should say, I'm sort of included in that, um, you know, to kind of, All the games. yes, exactly. To, um, you know, to experience like positive outcomes, you would think it would, you know, logically be, be more difficult. And, and it seems like that's probably the case. Um, but there's not a ton of research in the area, so it's, it's hard to say for sure. Um, yeah that's really interesting like this has been an issue for you know since the beginning of time basically why isn't there any more research in this i don't know you know i think it probably has to do with um a focus on like health disparities i mean i think when you are trying to do research on like the mental and or physical health of, you know, specific communities, like you're really trying to figure out like, what are the disparities, right? Like, what is it that's happening in this community that is, you know, sort of like, quote unquote, like worse compared to the general population. So again, like, you know, I think going back to identifying like, okay, if gay and bisexual men or queer men are more likely to attempt suicide, like, 
that's a really important thing to understand so that you can also prevent that from happening. Right. right. So, um, so I think a lot of the work has been in that area, but, um, for that reason, mm, I mean, it's such a great time to be gay. That's speaking from experience. You know, I love being gay. I've been out for a number of years, like continuously. I see on my feed of like these things, these positive things that are happening for the gay community, like legalization of gay marriage and uh, like legalizing uh, or what, what was that thing in India? Like they have now taken sodomy as like they've decriminalized sodomy. So it's a great time to be gay with all these things that are happening in our favor you know gays are winning Ooh, love it why is it still so prevalent within our community whether you're lesbian gay bi trans queer why is it still so much higher in our community like why these mental health issues why are they so much more prevalent when it's so great to be gay such a good question <laughs> i i feel like I don't know, you know, I think that actually, I, you know, I guess my own theory is just that I think it's a few things. I think, I mean, you know, I think first of all, it's, it's a question of like, do these things trickle down in society? Like just because you change these laws, like, does it actually mean that public opinion is changing? Right. Um, like are people more accepting of queer people? And I think, you know, in, in, at least I know stats from Canada, like, you know, we know that that is the case over time. Like, you know, like queer people have seen greater acceptance and, and sort of through the general population. But um, regardless of that fact, I mean, it's still not a hundred percent. Right. And so I think like queer people still experience a ton of like discrimination in daily life, whether that actually be something super overt, like a, you know, a, like a verbal assault or like a physical assault to something that's more like microaggressive, um, you know, like just being kind of called being, a faggot on the street or something. Yeah. Not cute though. Yeah. So gross. Keep yes. it in the bedroom. <laughs> yes, but it's still like, but it's still so real, right? Like that, that, that I think is still like a relatively common experience for people. Not many people would think that. If, or like, at least I'm speaking from experience. I don't know if straight people have ever had to be scared of holding their partner's hand on the sidewalk. And it's like, you're constantly thinking, is someone going to like, shout a slur at me i remember from like um i don't know 2015 or something when i was dating a guy at the time and we were holding hands and it wasn't even so much of a microaggression but it was just this these two straight dude bros they're driving in their car roll down the window and they're like hey you guys are gay <laughs> um okay that's a that's a fact. Yeah, I know. You're like, this is obvious. Thank you so much. Thank you. I totally forgot I was gay. Yes. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's so weird. But yeah. I mean, like, and it's, it's funny because like in a way that's sort of like, it's kind of, you know, it's sort of funny to think about maybe, but it's also like, you know, in the moment like that, it can be really like intimidating or terrifying really like to, yeah. you know, sort of be walking, literally walking down a street, feeling very exposed already, mm. um, you know, and then have someone roll down their window and like scream something at you. Like it's quite, you know, it's quite scary in a way. It's terrifying. And like the next thought that came into my head was, oh my God, what are they going to do to me? I need to figure out some sort of escape plan. Oh my God. But hey, I'm here. I'm queer. Get used to it. <laughs> uh, 
Today, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all the entertainment you love without the hassle. Direct TV Stream brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, which means you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. And the best part? There's no annual contract. So stop waiting and get your TV together with Direct TV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. Um, there, there is a term in your thesis uh, of positive sexual minority identity. Yeah. Can you go a little bit more into that? Sure. Um, yeah. So in the paper, like one of the, like I talk about, you know, what a, you know, sort of developing a positive sexual minority identity and really like what that is. It just, it actually just sort of comes from a particular paper. I, I, I um, cite a lot throughout the, um, throughout my, my thesis and really it involves like a scale that I use. So like one of the things uh, we used was called the LGB PIM, which is like the lesbian, gay, bisexual, positive identity measure. Um, and really it looks at these specific categories of things that could contribute to someone feeling like really positively about their identity as like a sexual minority person. So um, based on that work and like what they theorize, like they think that there's, you know, sort of five things that could, you know, contribute to someone feeling more positively about being a queer person. Um, And though, I mean, those are things like um, self-awareness. So really sort of just having more insight into yourself, knowing more about yourself um, can be one of the factors that sort of lead you to believe that your identity is, is something that brings, brings positive things into your life. um, Like brings benefits Um, authenticity. So really feeling like you live your life in a way that's consistent with your values, your morals, your, your identity, like you are sort of true to yourself all of the time or as often as you can be that's um, not just like the drag race live your life Haney. yes like it's, exactly it's beyond <laughs> that yeah i mean like that's maybe part of it but it's like you know am i am i living my life my life in a way that you know i'm happy with right like do i feel like i'm a good person to other people if that's something that's important to me um so yeah definitely like those things are like a bit more deep in a way as well um so community connectedness is another one so really like connecting to like queer spaces or queer people like having a solid group of maybe queer friends or you know a queer support group that you attend regularly or something like that um can be sort of something that makes you feel better about being a queer or like sexual minority person um then there's intimacy, which really means like, you know, having like intimate relationships with the people in your life. And intimacy is not just with your partner, but I mean, that's obviously part of it, but it also can be, you know, your friendships and your possibly family members, right? Like feeling like you have a really emotionally like rewarding relationship with them. Um, and then finally social justice. So really like engaging with advocacy right and i think that's one that i relate to a lot actually like sort of you know when i have had moments where i've done social advocacy work or you know been at a protest or like walked in a pride parade like it's it's really like such an empowering experience and um so i think we can you know get a lot of like 
positive feelings about being a gay or like queer person like from that too even your youtube history kind of shows your your uh yeah i did my research i did my I research. know those are still up too actually <laughs> about like how many thousand subscribers like seventeen thousand. i think um, it, yeah yeah like your youtube channel shows how much your leaning into your social justice it's mm. like i love it i just wanted to bring that up real quick because i think it's so cool but i wanted to touch back on these factors of positive sexual minority identity community connectedness when i was a young gaby i found it so hard to connect with pride with gay men with gay clubs just spaces quote unquote safe spaces that were designed to help queer people how do we like fix that i mean it should be so intuitive to just get in there like oh this is a space for me i'm gonna come here but why is it that me as a young gay guy why was that so hard like where was the disconnect yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, I, I've totally had the same experience. Like, I especially like when it goes back to like really coming out for the first time and like trying to meet other like gay people or um, like other queer men and like, you know, really not even just in physical spaces, like just even trying to connect on like a friendship level, like even through like apps or whatever, or like, you know what I mean? Like, it's hard. Oh, that, yeah. You uh, <laughs> will not name the rhymes of Trinder. Yes. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> yeah, it was so hard because like, I just thought that being gay meant just having sex and that's all it is. Like, where's the, where's the friends that we can build? Where's the connection? Which brings me to my next point, intimacy. Is that something that we're just not taught? Like, what, what's, what's going on there? Why can't we be intimate with each other? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, I think it's sort of one of the most upsetting things about, like, queer men is like it often can be really hard to feel like you have an intimate relationship with other with other queer men right and i think that honestly i feel like it goes back to like these sort of huge structures in society right like really feeling like the pressures that come from masculinity the pressures that come from even like within the queer community right like to your point like often among queer men like there's just this sense of like or there can be this sense of like sex is value you know like sort of having sex is what allows you to make connections or it's like kind of and it's and that in a way it's like only a physical experience which i which i don't agree with um or don't believe it is most of the time um but i but i think it's also masculinity right like i think just that sense of like you know a lot of yeah and like so many queer men like grow up like really feeling like a pressure to fit into it like and when we don't like you feel even more pressure to try and fit into it and like even more shame for like not doing that and so i think it it can often make you feel like more disconnected and like more and more disconnected and and therefore like it makes it harder to connect with people moving forward from your perspective where did that or where is that rooted from this whole idea that sex is valued masculinity is something to achieve and 
appearing straight is prized almost where do you think that like in your experience or your professional opinion where is that coming from i think it's just like the hetero normativeness of the world you know like that like by not being hetero like you're like you're the other you know like you're sort of the alternative and so um I just I, I don't even know if this is answering your question, but I, but I, I you know, I'm thinking back to what you asked earlier, even about like, you know, why do like queer men still have a hard time with like depression and anxiety and suicide and this kind of stuff. And I think that's part of it, you know, like that. A lack of intimate just, connections. Yeah, but also like the fact that, you know, we've it, the, yeah, we've made progress, say, in the last you know, a few decades or whatever, but still being queer is the alternative, right? Like in a way it's like, it's still the other experience. It's not, it's never the sort of main story. Yeah. Yeah, And so by not being default. Yeah. Um, um, So what does it mean to have an intimate connection? Because intimacy can mean one thing from one person and another thing to another what are the characteristics of an intimate connection? Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder how you like sort of define intimacy. Oh. Like what does it oh, mean to you? For me, because I go to therapy. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> for me, intimacy is this, um, this way to connect beyond the physical and to let your guard down. And it doesn't even have to be in like a sexual manner. I'm so intimate with my girlfriends, like on our group chat, when we're at the pole dancing studio with my straight best friend, I am not afraid to just vent and spew and just, give all this tea Mm -hmm. and yeah but is that (laughs) the the definition of what it means to be intimate i think it maybe depends on the person like i think it's interesting that you see it that way like i and i i really agree with you like it's it's you know you're really talking about like moving beyond the physical and like yeah maybe that's a piece of it but it's really like that sense of like emotional connection or like responsiveness that you get from other people right like I think in a research context, like intimacy is often like seen as, do you feel like your partner responds to you? Right. Like, you know, in, in moments, you know, I I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but like, if you are seeing someone and you kind of are very open to them about, you know, something that's like quite vulnerable or like close to your heart or whatever. And you know, just because you share that with someone else doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship is intimate. You know, I mean, it's it's often like based on how they respond to you, mm-hmm. um, if they respond positively or if they, um, you know, if they sort of don't give you the validation or like what you need in the moments, like it can really make it not feel like it's an intimate relationship. Um, yeah, Ooh, that's heavy to find someone that can <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's not heavy at all, Tim. It's actually quite light. This isn't just us talking about the weather. <laughs> You're getting deep on the podcast today. Honestly, it's Ugh. the deepest I've ever had to take in. <laughs> oh my god. No, um oh, she's got jokes. <laughs> she's a comedian. 
What are you talking about? That's true. Um, yeah, that's also one of my like defense mechanisms. When things get a little too deep, I'm going to bring it back up with some inappropriate comments, mm-hmm. um, which I'm working through in therapy because he's always my therapist is always like, "Why do you laugh when things get so heavy and deep?" I'm like, "I don't know." It's like you're scared. <laughs> hey, here's hundred and thirty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so yes, much exactly. for exposing that to me no no it's, it's a whole thing i mean i don't want to brag but i feel like i would rate so well in these factors like community connectedness authenticity but that's all because i go to therapy and now i'm just kind of working on my sense of worthlessness according to my therapist i don't feel that much worth i'm like huh, i'll prove you wrong and no he's always right <laughs> Um, okay, David, like there's something in your paper I wanted to bring up, um, the link between, uh, the lack of the sense of positive sexual minority identity and risky behaviors. What's the connection there? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that, um, you know, in thinking about risky behaviors, like, I mean, one of the things I think about, like, yeah, there's sort of risky sex behaviors, like, you know, sort of condomless anal sex. And I say it as risky in the sense that, you know, it has like health related risks to it. Um, same with substance use, right? Like when you think about like alcohol or particularly with like queer men, like crystal meth, like, you know, being kind of a really prominent thing, like in the community, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to say like what the relationship is between those things, but it seems that at least when I think about like substance use in particular, like it's sort of a, it can be a coping strategy, right? Like often it's, it's something that we do to like deal with negative experiences. Like, you know, for example, if you have a really like difficult time, like with the shame you experience around like being a queer person, you know, that the shame is so intense and so unbearable for you. Like one of the ways that feels like you at least get a momentary break from it is using some sort of substance. Like, I think that's probably the relationship there. So, you know, when we talk about like reducing shame or really like trying to reduce like some of that, like internalized homophobia that maybe you carry. Yeah. It's maybe that's part of why, you then, you know, sort of therefore be less likely to um, engage in like risky types of behaviors like substance use or risky sexual behaviors, which again, I think are often associated, right? Like when you think about crystal meth and like PNP, you know, sort of like party and play stuff, um, that those often happen at the same time and maybe are ways of coping with those negative, those negative emotions. Um, And so I think like eudaimonic types of things, like for example, developing a purpose in life or having um, like a positive relation or feeling you have positive relationships with other people or feeling that you have a sense of self-acceptance like maybe those are things that really address some of that shame and like therefore make it less likely to engage in other coping strategies that i think you can see as risky behaviors i mean i love myself i feel like i walk through the world without any shame i still love to take it up bareback every now and then Uh, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Right? I mean, <laughs> hey, I love the feeling of like, a, no, I'm not going to say it. I was about to say baby arm holding an apple. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
No. That's like very intense. That's just quite a metaphor. <laughs> nope, I'm not gonna say it. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> no, but yeah, that that like um that the use of risky behavior as a coping mechanism, yes, it can be uh true, but there's also like I'm getting a sense of like that's kind of generalized and oversimplified, no? Yeah. Um yeah, so it's not Every single gay guy out there that's having bareback sex, not not everyone there is like, not they don't hate themselves. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. It's just that you know, in in moments where, or for like folks who maybe do have a ton of shame around their identity, like that can be a coping mechanism. It's not to say it always is, but it certainly can be sometimes. And to your point, like for you know, when we kind of like engage in like what would be called riskier behaviors like having bareback but you know it's or having bareback sex bareback with, or substance use alcohol yes. use, all that stuff yeah yeah, yeah the, like the the function or like why we do those things are not always the same um yeah love it um <laughs> so you, with a study like this you had to have recruited like a lot of people like how many yeah. was it I think it was like 400 and something. I think wow. we ended up having like 500, but removed a few people who didn't finish the survey. So I think it was around 400 or something like that. And you did this all through a pandemic, right? No, I actually did this before COVID. So oh, this was done like a few months before. Yeah. So that was ideal. That's good. <laughs> what, what was like the trend beyond just gay men? Like, let's look at other identities like lesbians and queer. Were there lesbians? or like trans people, queer people of color that uh, participated in the survey? Yeah, so we actually, so actually a lot of the findings from the study are actually just drawn on all of the participants. So actually we ultimately, we got a huge range of participants. So we got like a ton of people who identified as like mostly gay and bisexual men, but there were a large number of people who identified as um, like queer in general, um, lesbian women, trans folks, like so, we did have a variety of of, of groups that that responded to this the the survey. Um, the challenge was we couldn't look at differences between the groups because there were the sizes were not big enough. So, like some of those populations that we surveyed, like for example, we had a couple two spirit folks like respond to the survey as well, but there was only a few, so we couldn't look at say differences in this study between say like gay men and like two spirit identified people um, when it came to the variables we were looking at. So that was like sort of unfortunate, but um, yeah. So the findings actually totally. And so, yeah. And one of the, one of the drawbacks of this study, frankly, is that, you know, we are kind of lumping the entire queer community together and kind of reporting on that. Um, however, with that said, I mean, this, this is one of the first studies, frankly, that has looked at this topic, right? Like looking at kind of positive well-being outcomes in, in queer identified people. So despite that limitation, I think that, I think the work still has value, but I mean, certainly like work moving forward, like would totally benefit from like looking about looking at some of these, you know, some of these variables like on positive and like eudaimonic, um, outcomes like with specific populations so like with trans identified people with gay and bisexual men you know with lesbian um women um yeah 
What would be the ideal scenario for you for conducting a more thorough uh, research to gather more accurate results? I would love to do like qualitative research. You know, I'd love to like do interviews with people and um, really like, I mean, for me, one of the things I'm so interested in is like purpose in life. Like I love understanding like how or why people feel like just like driven you know, like, what is it that kind of moves you forward and, and makes you feel like you have a sense of like, meaning and direction in life. And um, so I would love to actually interview people and really figure out like, what is the content of that? You know, like, what is it that actually drives you? Is it, is it having a positive partnership? Or is it having like great relationships with your family and friends? Is it having a good career? Is it, you know, fighting for social justice? Like, what is it that actually drives people? So, um, and I'm starting to do a little bit of work on that topic out of, uh, with like in collaboration with a couple of my colleagues at Washington university in St. Louis. Um, she's collaborating. Wow. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, that's also an American context and I would love to do these interviews like in Canada. Um, I think it would just be really interesting. Um, so yeah, I love that. Um, with the results of your research and all these numbers that you've got, has it changed the way you approach your mental health and clinical work? I think in a way, I think that, you know, this plus like some of my training, I think really leads me to see clinical work and, you know, people's mental health in general, like from more of like a strengths-based perspective. Like I really think it's important to see the clients I work with as resilient people. I think sometimes there can be a tendency in therapy to see clients as, you know, fragile beings, right? I mean, these are people who come to you with like all of their problems or, or some of their problems, right? And really like most of the content of a session is really talking about, what are the horrible things or what are the challenges that are going on in a person's life? And so I think it can be really easy to then see that person as very fragile and sort of um, really want to take care of them. And I think, I think that can be helpful, but I also think it's important to remember that people are resilient and they, you know, they have their own strengths to draw on. So I think bringing that into the space is helpful too. I love that you brought that up because in my last well, not in my last. In many therapy sessions ago, I came into the office thinking that I was a broken person, mm-hmm. just without like any sort of context. And I just came in like, I'm broken. I can't be fixed. I'm beyond repair, da, 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 all that. And the word that you said, resilient, kept coming up. And then I just had a hard time believing that I was actually a resilient person. Mm-hmm. And now I'm being more attuned to making myself think and believe that, yeah, I actually am resilient. Like, I have gone through life. I have been through A through Z and twice over. And I'm still fucking here. <laughs> but yeah, totally. not everyone has that feeling of resiliency. So I just want to briefly go into that what does it mean to be resilient and how can a person be more resilient yeah i mean i think i think even in research there's debate around this like some people argue in research that you know resiliency is like a trait like that it's like 
you just are a resilient person. Like either you develop that somehow, but like it's just a thing that you have. I mean, other research and frankly, the research I agree with is that there are things that contribute to resiliency. So like, for example, one of the, I mean, at this point, and this is really like still an emerging area of literature, but you know, really like the most prominent thing that's been studied is social support and or one of the most prominent things. And really that, you know, for folks who feel like they have positive social supports, right, like either positive friendships, support from their partners or partners, um, support from, uh, you know, family, you know, community, whatever, like that is really something that helps facilitate resilience. And essentially resilience just means that, you know, when you are faced with something difficult in life, you're more easily able to rebound. And I think it makes sense that, you know, for example, if I go through something, maybe not traumatic, but if I go through something that's difficult, like I lose my job, for example, but I feel like I have a ton of, you know, family and friends around me um, to support me through that process, it's probably not going to impact me as much compared to someone who feels like significantly more isolated or disconnected from from others. Um, like if someone like shattered their bottle of poppers while they're in isolation, where am I going to get my next supply? <laughs> yeah, that's definitely. Yeah, that's like a better example. <laughs> <laughs> yes, everything is just back to gay sex because that is life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised this is the first time poppers have come up in this conversation. Oh, actually. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, I actually have poppers in my tea right now just because I like to live on the edge. Nice. Love that for you. <laughs> um, okay. I love that. So to have like a good connection with people in your life, your family, your friends, your loved ones, that builds on resiliency. That's so beautiful because... It takes so much strength to say and admit that I need help. Like, totally. You don't have to go through it alone. I love yeah. that. And I think, I think like that's, you know, that's just one piece of resilience, you know? I think like in general, resiliency is just that that sense of being able to rebound when things are tough, right? Or, you know, ultimately, yeah, ultimately rebounding. Um and, you know, social support is just one thing that can really help that. I mean, other things I imagine could be things like, again, like going back to self-acceptance or, you know, I sort of wonder about even things like purpose in life again, you know, I sort of am always drawn back to that. But, you know, if you're someone who believes that your life has meaning and value and direction, like, I wonder if that sort of makes you more resilient or makes it easier when sort of tough times come. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I love that. And just for the listeners, rebounding does not mean going from one sexual partner to another. <laughs> Let's be very clear. <laughs> yes. Go to therapy. Find help. <laughs> I love you guys. I care for you, but come on let's yes. <laughs> let's come back to, down to earth um okay i just want to wrap this up in a neat little bow knowing the stuff that you found through your research and with everything that we've discussed today what is something that you want to give back to the world and you know like how do you want to change it using your findings Mm -hmm. that's a heavy question <laughs> it is yeah it's like oh my god it's like how do you want to change the world <laughs> uh, I want us to view 
well-being more holistically. Like I think for me, like well-being is not just the absence of negative things. You know, I think that actually like well-being is okay. Yes. I don't want to feel depressed all the time, but how do I actually sit with difficult emotions and how do I sort of recover from that? But also like, how do I develop strengths beyond that too? You know, again, like pulling us back to like having a sense of meaning or direction or self-acceptance or feeling connected to the world. Like how do I create or develop those things? Um, you know, as, as well. So I think like, for me, that's what I'm trying to do through my work. And and my hope is that that also shows up in my clinical work as well. Um, but I think that's like the impact I'm trying to have. You're very much like big mouth on Netflix right now. The energy you're giving me. <laughs> I love big mouth. It's oh, so good. That episode with the gratitude. Um, oh my god i know i was living for that and like they shared on their instagram like all these like like these mindfulness exercises with the gratitude and i was like oh i love this i love it like i can't go into the shower without saying i'm gonna take a bubble boy off (laughs) yes exactly yeah maya rudolph like my favorite thing ever if you ever hear this which i highly doubt you ever will i love you so much like I just want to. Uh, <laughs> I bet you smell like cinnamon and strawberries wherever you are, Maya. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm shameless. <Queen. laughs> um, yes, exactly. Just to send this off properly, uh, David. Where can people find you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I. It can be found on social media. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, my handle is my name. So it's David Collect. Um, and I also do clinical work in Toronto. So you can, you know, get help. Do therapy Guys, with get me. Help. You're more than welcome. <laughs> Everyone listening to this, get help. He is good. And it yeah, doesn't- shameless business promotion. <laughs> right? Hey, plug everything. Plug all the plugs. Like, it yes. totally does not detract like his attractiveness does not detract from your therapy session you can be like oh i'm going to therapy and my therapist is really cute ha (laughs) (laughs) all right david thank you so much for coming on the show this has been such a total pleasure and to all the listeners bye thanks for listening to the sex ed with tim podcast sex ed with tim is created and produced by me tim lagman music is aces high by kevin mcleod Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at GaySlutClown and at SexEdWithTim. You can also like and follow me on the SexEdWithTim Facebook page. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Even better, you can also support the show on Patreon, where you can get early access to ad-free episodes and more. Thanks for all your support, you dirty little slut. Mwah! Thank you.